Well, good morning, everybody. How are y'all doing today? Awake and ready? Yes. Caffeinated, hopefully. Um, well, we are diving into uh, a great story, and I know the story will hold your attention because the details are uh, and the descriptors are pretty vivid. Uh, but what I want to definitely say to you is, let us, let us utilize this today, because there is a lengthy passage, but it's narrative. As we look at this story in the book of Judges, this is kind of a standalone message, um, and this is a chance for us to really see what does the Lord have for us in the Old Testament, and what is going on with this story of the book of Judges as we look at the character of Deborah. And this is, a, we have titled it, a righteous judge, and are beginning to look at the work that the Lord does in and through her for the nation of Israel, for the good of the nation of Israel. But there's a lot here. So if you guys will, let's just dive into this, and then what we're going to do is we're going to unpack a lot of it, and there's a lot of things because we're kind of in the middle of judges in this standalone sermon. There's going to be some things I'm going to kind of explain uh, that has to do with the rest of the book of Judges, which is kind of assumed in some of the, the phrases that we're going to encounter in this text, and I'll unpack those. Uh, but let's do that. Let's just jump in. So if you guys have those bulletins, I'm going to read aloud, and if you would follow silently with me, let's look at Judges chapter 4, verses 1 through 24. Let's see what the Lord has for us. And verses say this, And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. And the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, the king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. The commander of his army was Sisera, who lived in Heresheth Hagoyim. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help, for he had 900 chariots of iron, and he oppressed the people of Israel cruelly for 20 years. Now Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, was judging Israel at that time, and she used to sit under the palm of Deborah between Ramad, Bethel, and the country of Ephraim, and the people of Israel came to her for judgment. She sent and summoned Barak, the son of Abinoam, from Kadesh Naphtali, and said to him, Has not the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you, Go, gather your men at Mount Tabor, taking ten thousand from the people of Naphtali and the people of Zebulun? And I will draw out Sisera, the general of Jabin's army, to meet you by the river Kishon and his chariots and his troops, and I will give them into your hand. And Barak said to Deborah, Well, if you will go with me, I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. And she said, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the road on which you are going, Barak, will not lead to your glory, for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. Then Deborah arose and went with Barak to Kadesh. And Barak called out to Zebulon and Naphtali and to Kadesh, and the ten thousand men from these two tribes, they went up with him at his heels, and Deborah also went with them. Now Heber, the Kenite, had separated from the Kenites, the descendants of Hobab, the father-in-law of Moses, and had pitched his tent far away as the oak of Zananim near Kadesh. When Sisera was told that Barak, the son of Abinoam, had gone up to Mount Tabor, Sisera called out all of his chariots, 900 chariots of iron, and all the men who were with him from Harasheth Hagoyim to the river Kishon. And Deborah said to Barak, Up, for this is the day in which the Lord has given Sisera into your hand. 
Does not the Lord go out before you? So Barak went down from Mount Tabor with the 10,000 men following him, and the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and all his army before Barak by the edge of the sword. And Sisera got down from his chariot and fled away on foot. And Barak pursued the chariots and the armies of Harashathagorim, and all the army of Sisera fell by the edge of the sword, and not a man was left. But Sisera fled away on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite. For there was peace between Jabin the king of Hazor and the house of Heber the Kenite. And Jael came out to meet Sisera and said to him, Turn aside, my lord, turn aside to me, do not be afraid. And so he turned aside to her and came into the tent, and she covered him with a rug. And he said to her, Please give me a little water to drink, for I am thirsty. So she opened a skin of milk and gave him a drink and covered him. And he said to her, Please stand at the opening of the tent. And if any man comes and asks you, Is anyone here? Please say no. But Jael, the wife of Heber, took a tent peg and took a hammer in her hand. And then she went softly to him and drove the tent peg into his temple until it went into the ground while he was lying fast asleep from weariness. So he died. And behold, as Barak was pursuing Sisera, Jael went to out to meet him and said to him, Come, I will show you the man whom you are seeking. So he went with her into her tent, and there lay Sisera dead with the tent peg in his temple. So on that day, God subdued uh, Jabin, the king of Canaan, before the people of Israel, and the hand of the people of Israel pressed harder and harder against Jabin, the king of Canaan, until they destroyed Jabin, the king of of Canaan. Graphic story. Graphic ending, isn't it? Right? And then we even get a song in chapter 5 about this victory. That's what chapter 5 is, which we're not going to really cover today, but we're going to have some elements of uh, the song of Deborah. We're going to kind of lace into this uh, picture. But when I was reading this, and um, I'm going through a sermon series with my students on the book of Judges at Christopher Newport, the image that came to mind was the one time I was in Texas, and I saw a lot of people during my time and tenure in Texas with their t-shirts and belt buckles that says, don't mess with Texas, right? In our passage, it's not so much don't mess with Texas, but don't mess with God, his land, right? Certainly his people, Deborah, and don't mess with jail, right? Because a lot of times in Texas, they say, if you grab the bull, you might get the horns. Well, in this case, right, you grab God's people or you mess with God, you're going to get a tent peg in your temple, all right? And so we see some pretty interesting things here in this passage, but what we're really seeing is divine mercy and divine justice in this story, in this narrative. And we're going to look at those major themes as we go through this passage. And we're going to cover six points. I know the average is three, but when you have a narrative, those rules of thumb for sermons go out the door because you are a servant to the text, right? And so we have six today, right? And so let me give you a highlight of where we're going to go, and then we're going to go there, all right? And so this is the structure of the sermon. We're in verses one through three. We're going to see the beginning of the cycle of sin and mercy. Second, in verses 4 through 9, we're going to begin to see who is this judge, this righteous judge, Deborah. 
In verses 10 through 13, we're going to see an amassing of armies, two armies amassing powers and troops, and it's kind of the calm before the storm that's about to come. And then in verses 14 through 16, we see this theological imagery called the divine warrior, because God often pits himself as this divine warrior figure. We see this, and this is kind of the main part of this in verses 14 through 16. We see another wonderful lady, the Avenger, or an ancient Avenger, Jael. She comes up in verses 17 through 22. And then lastly, in this last point six, we see a completion of this cycle of sin and mercy in verses 23 through 24. And what I'll note to you is that the author of this story is a master storyteller, and there is a rhyme and reason to the framing of this narrative as well. And that's why we begin and end. There's even middle parts that are corresponding as well in the story. And so there's a rhyme and reason for details that are put in the story and details omitted from this story. And we can't get into all the beauty of all that. We don't have the time. But I will tell you there are rhyme and reasons for the things in here hearing the things that are left out, okay? And so we have a master storyteller who's structuring this in a way to try to get us to the point that God is faithful, he's a protector, and he never leaves his people even when they are faithless. So we get to see this. But before we dive into all these details, let's go to the Lord in prayer, and then uh, let's drink deep of his word. Amen? Join me in prayer. Lord, you are faithful. You are kind. You are good. Lord, you are faithful and we are faithless. And Lord, in this Old Testament narrative, there is much to learn, Lord, of your character. There is much for us to see um, ourselves in this text as well, Lord, because we are a people with often twisted motivations. Lord, who uh, prioritize a whole lot more in this life than, than, than you, um, or your word, or your people. And Lord, we are reminded that um, the Israelites are not just idolatrous, but we are idolatrous people at times. And Lord, that often looks like how we spend our time, our money, and use our resources, Lord. And um, I pray that we would be convicted because we are sinful people. But Lord, at the same time, that we would see also you are a great and merciful God and that you are faithful, Lord, to provide for us, Lord. And uh, it's your mercy and your kindness that leads us to repentance. And I pray that we would see ourselves in this text and we would see a whole lot of your glory in this text as well. So open up our eyes, Lord. Open up our hearts to see ourselves as well as to see your glorious, Lord, nature in this. We love you and we need you. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. Well, let's just jump in. So let's look at the beginning, the cycle of this sin and mercy that we see in verses 1 through 3. And uh, let me just read just these verses, and I'm going to explain the cycle that we're going to see. It says, And the people of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud, a former judge or leader of Israel, after he had died. So after this judge died, they jumped into more idolatrous sin again. This was a pattern and a cycle that when godly leaders died, they jumped back into Baal or Ashtaroth worship, which I'll explain what that is in a little bit. Verse 2, Then, because they did this, they worshipped false gods, and they did not remain obedient to the Lord and to his word and to him, the Lord sold them to the hand of Jabin, the king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. Then the commander of Jabin's army, Sisera, lived in the place called Harasheth Hagoyim. And then the people of Israel, they cried out to their Lord because they were being oppressed. 
And this was a cruel oppressor, Sisera, who was oppressing them. You can imagine what that means because we have a descriptor. He wasn't just a bad guy. He was a cruel guy and a bad guy. It was terrible. We'll begin to look at a little bit of what that might mean. And it also tells you the power of this person. He had 900 chariots. This was, a, this was advanced technology. The Israelites, they did not have this kind of advanced tech, but this guy had it. So he had the respect. He had the advanced tech. He had a lot of, a lot of military might and power. And he subdued and oppressed, and he was a mean, cruel person who oppressed the people of God for 20 years, it says. All right? So what I say when this is a cycle of human sin and mercy, what we're seeing is the people of God, when they did not have a godly leader leading them, they returned to all their temptations and to all the other things that they looked to that looked better than God, better than worship, and they turned to those things, and at that time and day it was Baal and Ashtaroth worship. And what was Baal? He was a Canaanite nature fertility god. And they would pray and they would, they would do even sometimes sacrifices. Not oftentimes, every once in a while, maybe even people sacrifices or children sacrifices. But most of this also, this worship of Baal often looked like uh, temple sex worship in different ways. They had temple sex prostitutes, and so they had a sexualized culture in nature. Not unlike our world today, right? And the people of Israel thought, oh, I, I like that temple sex worship. That sounds great. I like that. And um, also because we're an agrarian culture, and this is a specific God for the rain, and we need to have sustenance and, and jobs, so um, that seems reasonable to pray and do sorts of sacrifices to the God who's actually going to provide normal means for us in our agrarian culture because we need rain for the crops and so forth. And so this is what they did. And they saw the Canaanites... They had better stuff than Israel did. So clearly it must have been working to some degree. They had more advanced tech. They had more fortified cities. It made sense. Their neighboring nations had more structure, had more things than Israel did at this time because the Israelites were a tent-dwelling people, tribes. And so they thought, we want to be like them. And so they associated with the culture of their day, right, because it seemed like it was working, that the grass was greener on the other side. Right? So, they go after this Baal worship. Problem, it doesn't work. But God is faithful, and as a loving father, he disciplines his children. He doesn't wipe them out completely like they deserve, but he disciplines them for a time, like any loving father does. Like when my son darts for the road, I discipline him. Why? Because I want to preserve his life, right? And so the Lord wants to preserve his people, and he disciplines them, and so he uses a foreign nation to discipline them, um, subdue them, oppress them, to get them to the point where they cry uncle and cry mercy, and they need it. That's actually a holy place to be and to see your need, right? Because Jesus says in the New Testament, I did not come for the well, I came for who? The sick. And if you think that you're not sick, you are mistaken. The Israelites for a while didn't think they were sick, being cruelly oppressed for 20 years, whoop, now they think they're sick, they cry out to the Lord, help. Right? This is part of the cycle. And then what does the Lord do? He then provides a deliverer for them. That's good news, to deliver them from this oppression. Right? And this is where we see in the second part to Judge Deborah, why she's so important, because she's going to be part of this deliverance that the Lord provides for the people. And so this is a reminder that God is always listening, and he hears our cries and our pleas for help. 
right? And that you never get a busy signal when you pray and cry out to God. But who is this person, Deborah, that we see in verses 4 through 9? Says she's a prophetess, right? There's an element of her seeing some way to the future where the Lord provides divine knowledge or dreams, but he speaks to her and there's a way that she understands and begins to see the future of the nature of the people as well as trying to lead people back to him. And so the Lord obviously works in unique ways, specifically with her. But also she's called in chapter 5 a mother of Israel. There's also even more details about her. There's a place named after her called the Palm of Deborah. This is really alluding to the fact that there's a central location where she would sit, hear civil matters among the tribes of the people, and she would judge and rule upon these civil matters, and she would try to just care for them to bring rule, bring justice for their well-being, right, and also just to care for the community. There need to be rules and boundaries, right? We need this. She would oversee them, and when she oversaw them, things went well for the people of God, right? And so she was an authoritative voice in Israel. Let me take a quick caveat here. The Bible is not anti-women. You need to hear that. Here we have a very strong, respected, godly lady leading orchestrating, ruling in the nation of Israel, and she actually, so you know that, is actually pitted and characterized as the most godly of all the judges that appear in the book of Judges. She is the only one in her narrative that does not have a major character flaw in her narrative, or a major ethical battle where she drops the ball. She is one who's given a lot of space and time and literature. Then at the same time, we also see a lot of good things happening from her leadership. We ought to take note of that, right? And so especially right in the Middle Eastern area and a patriarchal society, God is also working faithfully for, through this lady. All right? Beautiful stuff. I love to point that out because clearly there are some guys who might not have been leading the nation well, right? But this, God works through this wonderful woman to lead the people back to him. Good things, all right? So, secondarily, how did she know it was the right time to lead her people into war? Well, we don't know exactly. The text doesn't give us all of those details, whether it was a dream or an angel came to visit her, or whether she was just seeing that there was a common enemy and the people were finally fed up being oppressed and they were unifying under a common enemy. Maybe that was it and it was her as a good leader, a gut reaction to that. We don't know, but the Lord was working in and through different means to lead her to the conviction that it's time to put a stop and regain God's land and to stop this cruel oppression. We know that, right? And she calls on another leader from another tribe, the tribe of Zebulun, that was just adjacent to where she was, probably in Naphtali, and she calls Barak, this guy who's obviously respected, to help lead the nation, to lead these men into war. And so this is what she says. Deborah asks Barak, and this is in verse 6 and 7. Has not the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you, Barak, to go to gather your men at Mount Tabor, taking 10,000 from the people of Naphtali and the people of Zebulun? And the Lord said, And I, the Lord, right, will, will drive them out. I will drive Sisera, and I will push him towards the river Kishon. It will be me, and I will push all of his chariots there. And there at the river, I will give him into your hand. Has not the Lord said that? And Barak's response to Deborah is, uh, 
do you know what you're asking me to do when I'm going against with a more advanced army? Um, I'll go, but only if you, Deborah, come with me and you go. And he's like, I'll only do it. And she says, okay, I'll go with you. But what does Deborah say to him? She says, well, typically a general who leads an army into victory would get the glory, right? The pat on the back. <clears throat> she says, no, no, no. <clears throat> you will not get it. It will be another lady, another woman who will get the glory. It will not be you, Barak. And we don't know if it's because of his lack of faith <clears throat> or if it's just the Lord showing himself strong through what you might think is a smaller, harmless, weak woman. And the Lord showing the nation of Israel that the Lord is strong using what you would perceive as weaker instruments to do mighty things. Right? We don't know exactly, but maybe it's a lot of things going on that the Lord says. But the glory will not be for Barak, but it will be for another woman. That's what it says. Right? And, and what we see here is a picture of the Lord reminding Israel that you may not have the best stuff. You may not be the strongest. You may not have the best weapons. But if you have me on your side, there's not a thing in this world that can thwart you or can destroy you or hurt you. If, if you're with me and I'm with you, because I'm the one who's the creator, you are the created. Remember that. And so he's reminding us people. And because the people of God, they follow Deborah and her godly leadership, and she's well-respected. People follow her. Bart follows her. The, the, the 10,000, they gather. And this is where we see a gathering of the massing of the armies. And if you've seen Lord of the Rings, Two Towers, which is a fantastic movie, there is a part in right before there's a battle at Helm's Deep. You have all the, the orcs and all these evil creatures amassing and gathering with their thick, heavy armor, which seems to be a little bit more advanced than the, the armies of men and elves that they have with slightly less numerous numbers. And you see the massing of the armies right before right a great war is about to happen. And I kind of like to, to picture that happening here because you have little Israel against this dynamic of a modern army with pretty much like modern-day tanks against just foot soldiers, all right? And so we kind of see this, and this is where we get this pitted in verses 10 through 13. And let me read you what it says. And Barak called out to Zebulun and Naphtali and to Kadesh, and 10,000 men went up at his heels. They followed, and Deborah went with him. But then in verse 12, Sisera was told that Barak, the son of Abinoam, had gone up to Mount Tabor. So Sisera, the general of the Canaanites, he got his 900 chariots of iron and all of his men, nondescript number, but probably more than 10,000, and gathered them, and they went towards the river of Kishon. All right? And just so you know, the reason why this idea of iron and chariots comes up multiple times in the passage is to remind you of the, uh, the discrepancy between the two, the two groups of the war. That's what's going on. You don't have repetition just for, for, for no reason. It's always in your text for a reason, and it's to show you the odds were against Israel. Advantage, 900 chariots, right? Uh, mobile death machines to Israel that has zero. I don't know if they had pitchforks or what they had. I'm sure they had swords of some kind. But clearly they also had iron, which is a stronger metal than probably even possibly what the Canaanites had at that time. Advantage Canaanites, you would think. Well, you'd be wrong, right? As you heard the story earlier, but you're going to see that even though it looks like these modern advantages would be to the advantage of Canaan. 
you can't outdo God, the one who created even the intellect and the resources for all these modern advances in technology. You can never outdo God. Let's just all be reminded of that, even the day, right, where we have nuclear weapons and so forth. God is infinitely more powerful than all those things, right? It's just hard for us to remember that, but this passage reminds us that this is true. In verses 14 through 16, this is where we see this divine warrior go on behalf and to neutralize this modern tech on behalf of his people. And this is what we see in verses 14 through 16. And Deborah said to Barak, Up, for this is the day in which the Lord has given Sisera into your hand. Does not the Lord go out before you? So Barak went down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him, and the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and all his army before Barak by the edge of the sword. And Sisera got down from his chariot and fled, fled away on foot. And Barak pursued the chariots and the army all the way to Harasheth Hagoyim, which is their hometown. And all the army of Sisera fell by the edge of the sword. Not a man was left. So Deborah says with great confidence, the battle's already won. Let's go out and do this and take what's ours. This is ours. God is with us. Gather the troops. It's go time. Let's get together and do this. Yes, they have better stuff than we do, but we have God. They don't. They have an impotent God, right? We have the real, true, and living God, a divine warrior who is out for us and not for them. Let's do this. And what do you see? Look, it says, The Lord routed Sisera in the chariots. That is loaded. What do you think that means, that the Lord routed all of these chariots and this modern army? Flip over to chapter 5, verses 20 through 21. I'm going to read it to you, but if you have a Bible, you want to flip there. This is what it means that the Lord routed this army, all right? And this is what Deborah sings in her song about this routing that the Lord did on behalf of his people. It says, From the heavens the stars fought. From their courses, they fought against Sisera. The torrent Kishon swept them away, and the ancient torrent, the torrent Kishon, mighty, march on my soul with might. Deborah is saying that the Kishon River flooded violently and neutralized these war mobile death machines and rendered them basically useless, being stuck in inches of mud. How can you zip and zoom right when you're stuck in mud, right? Well, how did, how did the river flood? Well, God led the people by the river, but then also he caused the river to flood. How does it flood? An egregious amount of rain. Who's the rain god in Canaan? Baal. Does God have a sense of humor that he mocks the Canaanite god using his superpower against him and his people, destroying both his enemy and destroying this false worship, the rain god, by then using that very weapon to provide for his people and provide them victory, even though they had modern tech, Israelites didn't. God has a sense of humor, right? He will not be mocked, right? Don't mess with God, right? That would be a, a nice little shirt that we would wear, right? It's very true. But, not only do we see the army wiped out, but we also see that their uh, great, mighty, masculine, and cruel leader, he runs away as a coward, right? He gets away. But God will have his justice, right? He will not be left unslain. And so, what do we see? We see a whole beautiful picture of an ancient avenger called Jael, and who's a, uh, you would think, an unarmed, harmless lady. She is not. 
right? She is full of justice, and God uses her in a very fantastic way. And that is where we see a whole lot in verses 17 through 22. Now, after a battle, you'd be pretty tired, especially if you're getting a whooping, right? You'd be really tired fighting for your life, literally, and fleeing on foot. And because, obviously, they didn't have cars and planes, he would have been hoofing it for probably a couple of days until he got to what he thought was an ally of his, Heber, the Kenite. The reason why he's described in the story is because he had come up with basically a peace pact with this Canaanite king. That was bad. You don't do that with Canaanite kings. But he did. And so this is Heber's wife, Jael, and because Sisera knows, hmm, this is ally territory, I should be safe. And she warmly welcomes him. Jael, when comes to her tent, what does she do? She throws a rug over the side of him to cover him like false safety. Come on in my tent. And he probably asks for water. She's like, I'll do you one better. I'll give you milk. Not only that, I'll give you food in a nobleman's bowl, which is kind of like your fine china for nice people. So hospitality, warm care, she provides. And um, he's like, hey, will you stand at the door and make sure nobody comes? Or if they do come, nobody's here. She's like, I would love to do that for you. I will stand at the tent. And if anybody comes, you are not here. Right? So, but what does she do? She strikes him with a tent peg into his temple. So much so that the tent peg goes into the ground. That's what happens, right? Let me, uh, let me read to you in chapter 5 the song lyrics about what happens. Here it says, Most blessed woman be Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite, of the tent-dwelling women most blessed. He asked for water. She gave him milk. She brought him curds in a nobleman's bowl. And she also sent her hand to the tent peg, her right hand to the workman's mallet, struck Sister, crushed his head, shattered and pierced his temple. End of lyric. Catchy tune. Right? When you won't forget. And if you're feeling bad for him, don't, because he's already been called cruel. He's an oppressor. Right? He worships a, a basically a Canaanite nature sex god. And then on top of that, he's a womanizer. And isn't it funny that it's a woman who gets justice on him? How do you know he's a womanizer? Chapter 5, verse 30, it talks about him using women's wombs. And when you would have an ancient army who would take and sack another city, a lot of times women would get pillaged and raped. And their stuff would get taken. And that's kind of what's being alluded to, that Sisera's mother was waiting for him to come back after war, which she expected him to win, to bring her new women's garments and clothing after he had raped and pillaged more women in whatever the Israelite city that they were in. She was waiting for this. This was okay. This is commonplace. Right? Remember, cruel, horrible, terrible person. These are, this is what's being illustrated. Who gets justice? Lord is wonderful in his ways of justice. He uses a lady to exact justice, right? The God gets glory. This is it, and then what we have following that in chapter 5, which we're not going to read today, is a song about this war, this victory, about God's faithfulness. It was not the faithfulness of just Deborah or Jael, but it was the Lord's faithfulness to destroy this modern army and to even to get vengeance upon this terrible man who treated people in the nation cruelly and even used women in ways that are unspeakable. That is a good God. You want a God who is also full of justice. You want mercy, right? 
the beginning part, mercy. But you also want a God who's fully powerful and just. That is what we get in this story. He is a divine word who works on behalf of his people. How do we apply this text? Because most of us probably aren't called to uh, rail tent pegs through our neighbors or bosses' heads. It's not an application we should apply from this. So how do we apply this text? Let me first say, we are like Israel. We turn to other things all the time, false gods, um, rather than the true and living God. We turn to our children for identity and security about who we are. We turn to our 401ks, our retirement plans. We turn to our jobs and our job status, thinking that is the source of productivity and security. We turn to all sorts of things and success and getting ahead in this life in different ways that that's going to be our provider and protector, right? Or our front door or whatever it might be is going to be our protector and provider. Let me tell you, all those things will fail. But the Lord never fails, and he's with us. We would be well to remind that he is the one who we ought to turn to for protection and provision in every way, shape, or form. And we would be right to see that we are an idolatrous, evil, and sinful, motivated people, even if that's only how it lives in our heart and our mind and our motivations. Even if outwardly we're not as evil as we could be. Our hearts are pretty evil, right? They are. And so what we would be well to do is to cry out to God for help, for mercy, that we, we don't deserve, but we do get. Because he provides deliverance, right? And who is that deliverer? That divine warrior on our behalf? It's Jesus Christ. Who fought not just flesh and blood, but also the powers of Satan, sin and death on the cross. Infinitely more powerful, more detrimental. And because, yes, he does use sex and lust and pride and advanced technologies and other things that we would covet after to lure us away. Jesus Christ has destroyed those powers and temptations, the abilities of things, and made himself more mighty and glorious. And we would be well to be reminded that he is infinitely more valuable. He has better things in store than all those temptations that we might go to in this life. And so he is our deliverer. Did you all know that actually that's what Yeshua means is deliverer? And so as God provides, he provides deliverance in our temptations and our struggles. When we would go after other things than God, he provides deliverance from those things. If we would cry out for help, deliver us from the enslavement of those things. He provides. My friends, I live in this modern age. I see the new stuff, the cool things that come out all the time. My brother's a surgeon, infinitely uh, wealthier than I'll ever be. And I see beautiful things all around me. Sometimes I want those things. But I'm reminded the Lord has me in my place in this time. And he gives me what I need. And when I'm reminded of the Lord is enough, and what he's doing in and through me is enough, and will continue to be enough, I actually feel contentment and joy. Because God is enough, and he provides enough. We would be well to remember that we don't need to be lustful, covetous people because in the Lord, He will provide, He will protect, He will be enough. Turn to Him, cry out to Him, and He will show you how big He is. And that is good. Amen? He is a good God. He's a faithful God. Pray with me. Lord, you are faithful. You are kind. Lord, you are just. But you are, Lord, thankfully merciful to us. We need your mercy. Lord, I pray that we would be a people who would see our need of you because we are sinful people who turn to all sorts of other things in this life.
more than we turn to you for our hope, for our fulfillment, for our contentment. And I pray, Lord, and when we're faced with those things, that we would be convicted. We would cry out, Lord, help us with our unbelief. Help us with our temptations, Lord. Help us with our covetousness, Lord, our lust, our temptations. And Lord, deliver us from these things, Lord because we need your power, we need your deliverance, because these things are often incredibly alluring, and Lord, we need your help with them. You are a whole lot more, a whole lot more beautiful, a whole lot more powerful. Lord, show us your power and beauty. Help us to be a people who turn to you. And all God's people said, amen.